0: The Depravity of All Men, this is what I have titled this message. It's really what this psalm is speaking of. It's not speaking about people who are generally good and mess up sometimes, as we often think of ourselves. This psalm, it speaks of the utter unbelief and depravity that plagues all of mankind, Many will look at this psalm and think that it's only speaking of a certain people at a certain time. But if you look closer and you look at Scripture as a whole, this psalm speaks of the human condition apart from Jesus Christ. It speaks of the unregenerate man, the one who is lost in their trespasses and sin, the one who is dead spiritually, the one who the wrath of God abides on. This psalm speaks of all of us. Before we were born again. Before the Spirit of the living God gave us new life. This psalm we will see tonight speaks of the totality of all humanity. That they have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Except of course for the perfect one. The one who is perfect in every way, Jesus Christ. As we look at this psalm and it teaches us of our depravity of our sin, of our heart condition apart from Christ, I want to encourage you as you hear the words that you would see how desperately you need Christ. That this is who we are apart from Jesus. And as we look to this psalm, realize that you are bankrupt without Him. That He is truly your only hope in life and death. This psalm here, Psalm chapter 14, it is a psalm of David. He writes in verse 1, stating this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is how most English translations translate this verse here. But a better translation would be this, The fool says in his heart, no God. That is a better translation. This is a sentence that explains the utter rebellion against God. Saying no to God, no to His ways, no to His commandments, no to His will. Saying that they want it their way, not God's way. The term here, fool, as defined by Dr. Stephen Lawson is this. The fool is a person who is morally perverse, not mentally deficient. The term is a synonym for sinner. So as you read your Bible and you see how often it speaks of the fool, it's speaking of the sinner. It describes everyone who has no place for God in their life. The fool's problem is that his heart refuses the knowledge of God. To be sure, he's not an intellectual atheist denying the existence of God, but a practical atheist living as if there were No God. That is the heart of this verse 1. They live like there is no God. Saying in their heart, saying in the center of their being, No God. No God for me. I don't want Him. I don't want His ways. I don't want to live for Him. This is what this verse is telling us. What's the difference between an intellectual atheist and a practical atheist? An intellectual atheist is one who states that they do not believe in God. They are those who have rejected the irrefutable fact that God exists. They are those who believe in the scientific impossibility that out of nothing came everything. They are those who get the simplest equation wrong. Zero times zero equals zero. They say in their minds, Nothing times nothing equals everything. This is the intellectual atheist. But well, what's the practical atheist? The practical atheist does not say there is no God. He very well could say there is a God. He might even call himself a Christian. He might even say that he loves Jesus Christ and that he's saved by the grace of God. But they live in a way that shows that they don't believe that God exists. They live in outright rebellion to him, ignoring his grace, ignoring his goodness, ignoring all of his commandments. They live as if there is no God. This is what this psalm speaks of. And I'm going to tell you tonight, there's been a time in every single one of our lives where we have lived as a practical atheist living and not fearing the Lord, living and ignoring His Word, living in rebellion against Him, living in unbelief. Unbelief, it is a sin that plagues us all. A sin that leads to more and more sin in our lives. Charles Spurgeon, he noted on unbelief saying this, First, the sin of unbelief will appear to be extremely heinous when we remember that it is the parent of every other iniquity. Even as believers, we struggle with practical atheism, living in a way that displays that we don't believe what God has said. We don't believe what He has promised. We doubt who He is. We doubt His goodness. We live with unbelief in our life. Romans fourteen twenty three speaks of this, For whatever does not proceed from faith, is sin. Out of our unbelief comes more and more iniquity. David he tells us of this as he continues. He says, "They are corrupt," or "they are decaying." Their lifestyle is ruinous. It's marred or spoiled. This speaks of our sin nature that we are corrupt, corrupted by sin. And that we all are becoming more and more corrupt in our sin. David continues, he says, they do abominable deeds. Corruption, in this verse, it speaks of the inner man. It speaks about what goes on inside of us. It speaks of the truth that it is from within that we sin. It's from out of the the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Remember, the very first beginning of this psalm, it says, He has said in his heart, No, God. Corruption comes from within us. We sin because we are sinners. The abominable deeds here, the vile deeds that David speaks of, this is the outflow of the corruption of the heart of man. It is what affects the world that is around us. It affects others. These deeds to God are Vile, And David says in this verse, there is none who does good. You want to know why the world is such a mess? Why there's so much evil? Why people do evil things and evil persists? It's because of the nature of man. He rejects God as we see in this verse. He says, no God for me. And the verse teaches us that his heart is corrupt. And because his heart is corrupt, he does vile deeds. So, what's the conclusion? There is none who is good. This is what this verse is teaching us. And ultimately, this is God's conclusion, too. Look at verse 2. God high and lifted up the Holy One who sits on his throne, he looks down from heaven on the children of man. To see if there are any who understand. Are there any who perceive He looks to see, are there any who seek after me? He looks through the hearts of man. He looks intently at us to see every single thought, every single deed, everything about us. He looks to the children of man and says, are there any who understand? Charles Spurgeon, he notes on this verse this. He who looks down knows the good. He's quick to discern it, and he would be delighted to find it. But as he views all the unregenerate children of man, his search for all the race of Adam, everyone who has fallen in Adam, no unrenewed soul is anything else than an enemy of God and goodness. God's search here. In this text is empty. He looks at all of mankind and he finds no one. No one who understands. No one who seeks after him. This is what the text is teaching us. You know, in our modern day, we love this idea of a seeker. We love to throw it around and say, that person's seeking God or that's a seeker friendly church. But the text is not teaching us that. It's telling us that there is no such thing. Look at what God says here. He's saying to us, no one is perceiving him. No one is understanding him. And no one is seeking him. Paul in Romans chapter 3, where he's laying out the condemnation of all men apart from Jesus Christ. He uses this very verse in Romans 3.11. And you know what he says? He says, no one understands. No one understands seeks after God. And that's the truth of what we see. You are either born again in Christ or you are lost in your sin. If you are born again, you do seek after God. If you are lost, then you're only seeking your own wants and your own desires. The truth of the matter is this. The only true seekers of God are the people of God. Think about it. That's what we're here to do tonight, isn't it? to seek his face to understand him more to worship him, to love him to serve him, we are the God seekers here tonight but apart from Christ there are none who seek God David he continues look to verse 3 with me so God he's looked down on the children of man and he's He's asking, are there any who understand? Are there any who seek me? And look what he finds in verse 3. In verse 3, the text tells us that the answer is he found no one. All have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. This is our nature apart from Jesus Christ. This is who we are. And hear me today. This is the way it's always been since the fall of Adam. <laughs> this is what the Bible teaches us. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his hearts was only evil continually. You know why God judged the earth with a flood? It was because of this very thing, that their thoughts were evil continually. You know why God will judge the world with fire a second time? Because of this very thing. And in case you think things are changed, you're like, this is the Old Testament we're in. In case you think things have changed, the Apostle Paul, when he lays out his defense that all men are sinners and all have fallen short of the glory of God, he uses these very verses from Psalm chapter 14. He says this in Romans three, 19, 3 nine. What then? Are Jews better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There are no exceptions. This is what... The word of God teaches about us that we desperately need Christ, that without him, we are truly lost. I want you to hear the words that are in this Psalm chapter 14 and hear that there are no exceptions. It says all of them. It says there are none who are good, not even one. All have turned aside. In verse 4, here we see another outworking of the depravity of men. In their sin, they, they devour the people of God. That shouldn't be rising to us. As darkness hates the light, and being driven by sin, they easily consume God's people. That's what the text is telling us. As easy as they would eat bread, they consume the people of God. Of God. Verse 4 tells us of those who are in rebellion against God that they refuse to call upon the name of the Lord. That they, in other words, have, they have no need for God. They do not have any desire to worship God. They have no desire to pray to God. They don't want to receive His grace. They do not want to rely on Him. In other words, they refuse to seek Him They are consumed with their own desires. They worship themselves rather than God. They will not call upon the Lord. Verse 5 tells us that God is the salvation of his people. Really, that's what we see in verses 5, 6, and 7, that God will save his people. But to the unrighteous, to those who are apart from Christ, to those who are in rebellion against God, it says there that he will be a terror to them. A terror to them. What is the terror that is talked about here in verse 5? Some see it as times in the unbeliever's life when their conscience will be a terror to them. This is what Charles Spurgeon saw in this verse. He said, Sinners, there. Were they in great fear? A panic terror seized them. They fear to fear, as the Hebrew puts it, an undefinable, horrible, mysterious dread that crept over them. The most hardened of men have periods when their conscience casts them into a cold sweat of alarm. This is what he saw this verse meaning. Others see this speaking the judgment of God that comes upon the unbeliever. A swift judgment that will come upon those who come against His people, who persecute His people. In verses 5 and 6, it describes God as a salvation to His people, the defender of His people. But for all those who reject Him, for all those who persecute His people, it speaks of God here as a swift defender. Psalm 53, it's almost an identical psalm to this psalm chapter 14. It differs here in verse 5, and maybe this is what the author is trying to tell us here. Psalm 53, verse 5 reads like this. There they were in great fear where no fear had been. For God had scattered the bones of him who encamped Against you, you put them to shame because God had rejected them. When God's judgment comes, it truly will be a fearful thing. Revelation six it gives us an idea of what the judgment of God face lo- looks like. In verse 15 it says this, Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains, and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This psalm tells us that to be apart from God, people will face great terror. So tonight, as we've looked at this psalm, and we've looked at Psalm chapter 15, 14, sorry. How do we apply this to our lives? What do we take away from this? First and foremost... We must examine our hearts. I promise you, on that last day when we stand before God and the books are open, people that went to church their entire lives will be cast into the lake of fire. Because they sat and they heard the message over and over again, and they refused to repent. They refused to give their life to Christ. They refused to bend their knee. And they said like those in this psalm, no, God, I don't want you. I don't want to live for you. And they just gave this religious show their entire life. But the truth of the matter is their hearts were far from God. Tonight, As you hear of the depravity of man, as you hear of your condition apart from Jesus Christ, it's time to examine your heart. Do you know the living God? Do you know Christ? Do you love him? Do you live for him? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Hear me. There is no neutrality. Look at this psalm. You're either the wicked that the Lord is against and you will be terrified by Him or you're of the people of God who He loves and He will defend. You're in one camp or the other. There is no in-between. I hope you see it from this psalm that there's absolutely no hope apart from Jesus Christ. None. None you're not gonna be good enough to get there. There's no righteousness in and of ourselves. We are who this psalm describes. We desperately need Christ. You're not going to stand before God and appeal to anything. He's going to say, you were corrupt. Everything in your life was corrupt. You did vile deeds because they were tainted by your sin nature. You got no hope apart from Christ. Our only hope in life and death is to throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ and to beg Him to save us. Please. See it tonight. It took a perfect God-man to satisfy the wrath of God. Nothing in your life will ever do it. It took a perfect Christ dying on a cross, suffering under the holy wrath of the Father for your sins to be forgiven. There's no way you're going to work off your sins by yourself. It took a perfect Savior with a perfect life It took him standing in your place for you to have a hope to be right with God. Jesus Christ is the only way for the unrighteous that are spoken about here in Psalm chapter 14 to be made righteous in the eyes of God. He is the only way for the sinner like you, like me, to have our sins washed away. This is our desperate need to know Christ and live. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while you are still the person that this psalm describes, Christ died for you. The second point I want to take away from this sermon tonight and where I will finish up is this. Even as Christians even as those who have received this great gift of salvation in Jesus Christ we can live as practical atheists what do i mean by that well we say we love god we say we know god we say we're his we say we trust him we say we believe his word we say we believe his promises but then we don't live like it amen our words are cheap They're not the reality of our hearts. Some of us live in outright sin, sin that our very Savior died for. We live in such a way as if our Savior did not suffer and die for us. Some of us live as if God doesn't hate sin. Other, others of us live with constant anxiety, constant doubt, constant worries, as if God has abandoned you. As if God is not for you. If God, as if God does not love you. if As if God is not working all things in your life out for your good. As if somehow God has stopped to sanctify His people that He promised that He would be sanctifying. As if somehow God has stopped To keep his promises. We live as practical atheists, living as if God has lied to us, as if things are out of his control, as if he's not sovereign over all things, as if he will not keep his word. Tonight, please, don't live like an unbeliever. Live like those who know who holds tomorrow. Live like those who trust God. Trust his goodness. Trust his grace. Trust his love. Trust his character. Trust his word. Trust his promises. Live like those who trust God. Live like those who know that God will judge the quick and the dead. Live like those who know God finishes every single thing that he starts. Live like those who realize that they've been loved beyond anything that they can even fathom. Ultimately, what this psalm is teaching us, if we live like practical atheists, we carry his name in vain. Instead, let us, let us not. Let us repent if we have. And instead of the, being the people... They say no to God. Let us be a people that says, yes, God. Yes, he's my God. He's the one I live for. He's the one who I want to bring glory to. He is my God. Yes, God. Please. Live for him tonight for his glory.